You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Boy, it has been a while because, frankly, I have no concept of the passage of time anymore. That's become abundantly clear. Uh, I went to record this week and noticed that it had been like two and a half weeks or something since the last podcast. And I thought to myself, wait, wait a second. It was like five days ago, not two and a half weeks. But maybe that's just me. Uh, let me know online at this point in 2020 at LG35 on Twitter if you too have completely lost the normal concept of the passage of time. Um, things that are exciting, speaking of the passage of time and, and history, uh, is a little historical thing I've been working on for most of 2020 in the background. At some point, I've had to pause it and come back to it, but. It's been a project for most of the year, and it is finally kicking off. That is the Thinking Basketball Greatest Peak series, where we are going to start around the ABA merger, 1977, when the ABA and NBA merged, and mostly chronologically work our way through the highest peaking players in NBA history. That series officially kicks off Monday, a few days from when this podcast will be released. That's Monday. November 23rd. If you are a Patreon subscriber, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, you can head on over there and find all, all sorts of additional stuff. But one of the things you get, if you are in the highest tier we have, the deluxe tier, we will be releasing the episodes a week early. So um, this this week's episode was already released on Monday. And then if you're in the tier below, you will uh, also get early access a few days later, so it'll be a little bit before uh, the official public release on YouTube. The series will run for a while. It will run for a couple months. Um, the original plan was to run it in a either a normal off-season or once we went into the bubble mode and understanding... Remember, I, I also um, at one point in time had a, a podcast on COVID-19. And so in looking through a lot of that stuff, I was projecting a difficult window after the bubble because of things like seasonality, because of things like uh, what happens after you relax restrictions and, and fatigue and all that stuff. And my assumption was we would be where we are currently kind of from a pandemic perspective. And given all of the things that happened in the bubble and when the bubble was ending, that the season would kick off in, uh, you know, Martin Luther King Day or February or something like that. So it was designed to fill this gap. Turns out, joke is on me. Uh, there will be no gap. We are set to go on December 22nd once again, and we're back here with the draft and free agency and all that stuff already kicking off. So um, the series will bleed into the beginning of the season. That That's the takeaway there. Now, 
on tap for today, the plan is to go through some of these trades that we've seen thus far in the new season. We've had a, a, some big moves and then, of course, some more wheeling and dealing with the draft this week. And I think I did this two years ago when the podcast started, certainly did it last year. This will just be from the perspective of team fit. And of course, I, I tend to be more interested in teams that are trying to get good, you know, teams that are trying to become 50, 55, 60 win teams versus I'm not going to ignore the the 30, 30 win teams of the world forever. But as I've said before, the the Knicks are not always on my my league pass viewing. Um, apologies to New York. So we'll do that. We'll go through a few of those trades. We've also had some uh, questions coming in on Twitter and, and places like that that I've wanted to get to. And one of them is about my process for watching games, which I've talked about a little before here and in other places, but really watching games and then translating those games into profiles and analysis. So a little bit more about my process. We, we will get to that later in the episode. But first for me, the most interesting thing about the draft, having not known anything about the players, I, I mean, out of all the years of being a basketball fan, um, between the intensity of this NBA season, both on and off, the lack of March Madness, and all the other things going on. And then, as I said, the decision to, you know, a lot of my time has been watching old games this summer. So I know nothing about the players coming in in the draft. I've seen a few of them on film, but for the most part, uh, it's something that's a bit of a black box that I'm going to have to catch up on. So with that said, the most interesting thing to me was what the Golden State Warriors were going to do with the number two pick. And that's kind of what I was focused on. Were they going to take one of the high profile, but kind of unknown? I mean, out of the top three picks, uh, LaMelo Ball played a handful of games in Australia. Wiseman played, I think it was three games in college. And then, of course, Edwards. Edwards actually played, but Edwards took up basketball I feel like I know more about Edwards than I know about his game. Um, I've seen a few clips and highlights, but you know he took up basketball later in life, and it's not something that's a huge passion. So that can cut both ways because we've seen examples of all-time great NBA players take up the sport later, Pascal Siakam recently as well. And I think the benefit there is you don't create bad habits as easily, but of course you don't have years and years to kind of refine your feel. So your feel when you're drafted at that point in time can be a question mark um, on your growth curve. So instead, you know, I would, would they trade the pick? Would they play for now? Would they take one of those guys? Would they take someone else? And then we were hit with the devastating Clay Thompson news. I, I was actually going to record. Uh, and then I heard that news and I just kept waiting to, you know, we took another day to find out what happened. Clay, uh, along with DeMarcus Cousins, apparently the second, I guess, I guess I haven't heard of anyone else, the second athlete in a major American sport to suffer both the ACL and the Achilles injury. So he's out for another year. 
and and that is just like peak basketball depression. Um, I've actually had some Warriors fans that I know text me and say, "Just do a just do like a one hour therapy session for us. Um, just just help us through this." Man, I feel that. I mean, my original thought really quickly on it is just how fun and how enjoyable those Warriors teams to were to watch 2015-2016. We got another glimpse of it, I think, at the end of the 2019 season uh, when they finished the playoffs after Durant's injury. And just, you know, we, we didn't get to see it last year. So many key players missing from the NBA last year. And that was one of the things I was most excited just to see how that continued to play out. So, yeah. I, I mean, on the bright side, if you're anything like me and you have no concept of time anymore, then maybe it won't be too long until he's back on the court doing his thing. I, I'm interested in kind of how a player like Clay looks coming back from this injury as a very much north-south movement player. You know, I I talked about this in his defensive profile last year. One of the things that has always stood out to me about the way he moves on defense is it's not a tremendous amount of left-to-right torquing. He's not Barry Sanders or sort of your classic, like, defensive stance and I'm really quickly hopping around left and right or moving my feet left and right. He, it's kind of looser hips, if you will. He, he's turning his hips and running more um, when he comes around curls and, and cuts off ball and all the beautiful, incredible things that he does in motion and movement without the rock. Like he is doing that in a way that I think has, um, you know, he's not a wide receiver putting his foot in the ground and planting hard. So I'm really interested to see. I, I think that ACL injury, in a way, was mm, fluke is not the right word I'm looking for, but it was a a pretty serious like impact injury from a landing versus him cutting and the ligament going that way. And that's the first injury. The Achilles, you know, we can speculate who knows uh, what led to that. But my optimism here, I think the, the sliver of hope going forward is that even though he's going to come back and be about, he'll be about 32. He turns 32, uh, turns 31 this February. He'll miss this season. He'll be back next year. Uh, I think that there, the 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 framework, the foundation of his game, could still remain intact on offense. His defensive capability and how he moves and all that stuff uh, is to be determined. But you know, he's gonna, he was going to, in theory, sort of decline slowly with the aging curve anyway that's another thing he's got to battle at that point it'll be an enormous amount of time I mean he was last on the court in June of 2019 and we're coming up on 2021 and we know there's another year there so um, hopefully (laughs) hopefully he comes back and doesn't lose too much so all this of course is related to Golden Golden State's strategy on draft night and they ended up taking James Wiseman and then bringing in Kelly Oubre Jr. Whether they would have done those exact deals anyway, I have no idea. But right now, they stand with a team that looks like, I mean, if you assume Wiseman's going to start, I don't know if he's going to start, but you could assume he's going to start. And then you've got Curry and Draymond Green, the old guard, 
and then Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre Jr. I like the way Oubre plays. I like his cuts off ball. Uh, I think he's he's kind of a nice fit in this system, uh, quote unquote system. Uh, the system is has has been you know creating gravity and movement and scoring um, and that sort of dynamic punch that comes with that with Clay and Curry running around. And now it's only going to be Curry. Curry is going to be 33 himself this March. He's not a spring chicken anymore. And so he's also added a little weight. You know, that was going back and looking at his his film for this historical series. He was clearly quicker a couple years ago when he was lighter. And one thing that I've seen in players who have a lot of longevity, who put on a lot of miles, if you lose weight later on after going through that period, LeBron James did it, Tim Duncan did it, Curry added weight for a reason. He added a little bulk in his upper body because teams were targeting him and pushing him around and beating him up and things like that. It's a natural thing to do. But now, you know, now he's 33. How much does that wear on his motor, on his endurance? How much does that hurt his kind of agility and quickness advantages that he has off the ball? I don't know, but it's something I'm thinking about. It's something to monitor going forward. If at if at a certain point he needs to, I don't know, shed a few pounds to get some of that quickness back. All, all of this is to say that I think they lack firepower. I think they lack uh, sort of enough of a heavy load carrying support structure for guys like Kelly Oubre, uh, again, who I really like. And I like the fit in this system, but I like it a lot better if he's sort of like the fourth guy on offense, if you will. This goes back to the, uh, you know, O one D one. Where do you rank on offense? Where do you rank on defense hierarchy? He's not someone ideally, I, at least the way I see his game right now, that you want carrying too much load or usage. But I do like the concept of the fit for Golden State right now and going forward. Uh, Before we get to some of these other Pacific moves, the Lakers, the Suns, things like that, let's discuss the move maybe I'm most excited about from a team-building and philosophical standpoint, and that is... Well, before we do that, actually, let me tell you the most exciting thing that happened to me this week. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know how much I enjoy myself some cooking. So this week, I went ahead and got HelloFresh. Basically, the way it works is they drop the food off. You order, they drop the food off at your doorstep. No contact, super easy, things like that. You pick from... You know, you can pick vegetarian, pescatarian, low calorie. They got all kinds of different options that you choose. And then they send you this stuff and it's kind of assembled and it's got these really cool pictures and diagrams. The designer in me kind of appreciated how uh, clear and simple the steps are. You don't have to have too many cooking chops to put stuff together. And it was kind of fun. Um, Yesterday made a black bean and poblano quesadilla. That was a... That was quite fun and quite tasty, and they've been kind enough to sponsor today's podcast, so you can get $90 off 
including free shipping, if you go to HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball90. Today, you got to add that 90. So it's HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball90. You'll get $90 off your order with free shipping. Uh, yeah, if you've done that, let me know. It was a lot of fun. At LG35 on Twitter. Uh, HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball90. Okay, now the trade I'm most excited about. It honestly wasn't as fun as the as the HelloFresh and assembling all the food and things like that. Um, the Philadelphia 76ers, who very quickly now are starting to construct a roster that seems to make a lot more sense around the key pieces that they have, namely Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. We'll see if they both stay there or what, what transpires, but at the least bring in shooters. Uh, one of those shooters, Danny Green, he's in, uh, Al Horford out, and then Seth Curry, another piece moving to Philadelphia to play for Doc Rivers. As many of you know, I am not super excited about Doc Rivers' X's and O's or his offenses. Um, I think he does well with lesser parts or scrappier parts, but I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence in him unlocking some really creative way to use the players there. But with that said, just adding complementary pieces like Seth Curry, like Danny Green. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that J.J. Redick left. Uh, Shamit is another guy who I think could have helped there. The shooter role, if you will, uh, is something that they seem to really need. And I talked about this recently on the podcast around big men archetypes and building around different types of offensive big men. I think around Embiid, with the right shooters, four-out system, um, using him in the dunker spot, things like that. Obviously, he can shoot from the perimeter occasionally himself, but I just think it's possible. Maybe you move him a little higher. I think it's possible to have an offense that is is good. I don't know if there's an obvious path to a great offense that way, uh, and part of that is just I don't think of as good as Embiid is. I don't think of him as an offensive superstar. He doesn't have those chops to me. Uh, and a lot of that is because of the passing and playmaking. But when you start to put these pieces around him, and in the case of Danny Green, assuming he's still got a step left, you know, he, and he hasn't completely uh, gone over the hill, then you get that 3 and D offense, defense, complementary piece. And when you have a guy like Embiid, you are looking to still have a high level or elite defense to kind of anchor your team around. If you are in Camp Ben Simmons, which I know a lot of 76ers fans are, uh, certainly the ones that I know and talk to, I think it's still think it's the same thing. A kind of like a Jason Kidd teams, you know, team in the past where Simmons teams or Kidd's teams are still going to be good defensively because of all the versatility he offers on defense. I mean, I think an in interesting construction with Simmons is basically having him play the five. I don't know if he's got the stomach for it in terms of banging or playing against physically stronger, bigger bodies in certain matchups, but that's also part of what makes Embiid so intriguing to me, by the way, is that there are situations where he's just going to be a nightmare and he kind of, it, it reminds me a little of Shaq, you know, obviously I got to watch 
some shack recently with all of the historical footage I'm going through. And when you have a guy that is just that physically dominant, he forces you to play players that maybe you wouldn't want to play. You know, he forces you to say, okay, I have to bring another big into the game. Okay, I have to have a body who can handle his his weight or something like that. And if you're going to lean into it in the other direction and say, all right, we'll give Embiid everything he's going to get, and then we're going to try to play small and stretch him and still play our way, that's fine, except if Philadelphia has a roster around him that has a little bit more firepower and has, you know, a little bit more... Um, defensive versatility maybe that's where Simmons comes in I don't know but certainly certainly cause for optimism in Philadelphia after a bumpy year or two I like the general direction of those moves a huge move just in terms of the all-time sense Chris Paul going to Phoenix and this one's interesting to me because conceptually it I don't see it getting Phoenix really into the mix of highly competitive teams in the West. But I think you could make a pretty decent case, uh, obviously depending on how the offseason shakes out and things like that. But I think you could have made a decent case that Phoenix was going to make the playoffs this year before this move when they had Ricky Rubio. Now, what does Paul give you that Rubio doesn't give you? Those are my immediate thoughts. Because Paul... Uh, as good as he was last year, I'm a little lower on him than I think others simply because of his age and his motor and his inability to do things that he used to be able to do. So he's crafty as a defender still. He's sturdy as a defender. He's pretty smart as a defender. But not only does he not have the motor, but he doesn't have the agility. He doesn't have the same athleticism that he used to have the same quickness that he used to have. That also shows up on offense in some of his passing or some of his ability to get all the way to the hoop. And as good as he is, I think that's something that would have been more and more noticeable the later in the playoffs Oklahoma City or any Chris Paul team would have advanced. You know, that's something actually that is often left out of the discourse where a player's context and the opponent we see him last on leaves such a large impression. And so if you're on a weaker team, or I think I think this applies especially to younger players, rookies, second year, third year, and then guys coming down on the other side of the aging curve like Paul, when you are on a team that is not really going to end the season in a high-level series, meaning typically the conference finals or the finals, but it could be the second round. And you either don't make the playoffs or you bow out in the first round. It can be difficult to, especially statistically, because you're not put in that cauldron, it can really be difficult to judge them with the right lens because they don't get the treatment. They don't get the full treatment. They don't get put under the microscope of playing a high-level offense or a high-level defense. And I want to be careful not to indict CP3 here because certainly two years ago, I think I was probably higher on him than most people, still saying he was a looking like a solid all-star type player in Houston uh, as others were giving up on him. And I still think he was kind of in that range last year, but I've seen people talk about him like a, you know, like a top 12 or top 15 player. And I think that's probably pushing it because of this very reason. 
And so next year, how does that play out in Phoenix? Well, it plays out in two parts to me. One, what kind of regular season durability does he have? That's always been an issue. And in this past season, he was extremely healthy for his standards, played essentially the entire year. And then coming up on this 72-game path that teams are on, kind of a compressed schedule uh, where they're, you know, they're only going to release. I don't know if you caught this. It kind of slipped under the radar. They're going to release the second half of the schedule later in the, later in the season. So they're only kind of going into the season with a, a first half of the schedule. And the thinking behind this is to create flexibility based on all the moving parts with COVID-19 and uh, you know availability in arenas and kind of, uh, well, I shouldn't say availability in arenas. I should say rescheduling games and how you do that logistically. So that's one part of it in the sense that you know, if he plays 75% of those games versus 95%, it is going to have an impact on where Phoenix ends up. One of the things that I think Rubio did so well was kind of act as a guiding force. And Paul will probably have that in spades. Um, I'm not necessarily concerned about the fit next to Devin Booker. Devin Booker showed me a lot last year, both with his, with his overall game continuing to grow and specifically that off-ball game. That's what I was concerned about or questioned heading into the season. And I think he really shoved that one back in my face uh, because I just really liked what he did from a skills perspective off the basketball last season. So I, I think they'll go well together from a basketball standpoint. But, you know, 70% of the games with Paul versus 95% probably is the difference between like, I don't know, I'm making up numbers here because we have to see how the rest of the conference shakes out, but hey, the eighth or the ninth seed versus the sixth seed or something. And then from there, then you get in the playoffs. And in the playoffs, I've talked about this as well. Are you a four round team or a, you know, one or two round team? Um, like last year's Oklahoma City Thunder, I think they would have done very well to win one playoff series. It's a pretty big jump to get to a place where you're winning multiple playoff series and trying to get over that hump, say, into the finals, trying to win a third playoff series. For the Suns, I don't see them in that latter group, probably because I just don't see Chris Paul as someone who's going to come in. I mean, let's say Devin Booker is a top 20 player next year or something like that. Let's just throw that out there. And therefore, you would expect the Suns to continue to improve is Paul someone who put next to him with the right kind of reasonable defensive pieces in the front court? Is that something that you look at and say, hey, they could win a second round series with high probability to get to the conference finals? Could they compete in the conference finals? Uh, to me, it's still no. So it, it makes it an interesting move because I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be a 50 win team. But you typically don't see that kind of trade swung for a veteran, you know, with a very gray beard. Staying in the Pacific, I like the Schroeder trade. Uh, Dennis Schroeder coming to the Lakers. Danny Green is out. And the reason I like this trade is they want more ball handling point of attack creation on offense. That was something that was missing last season. And so 
whatever you give up on defense, or even even if you give up the shooting, you know, I think Schroeder has to be able to shoot it 30, 33%, 35%. Can't go in the tank. But that's not going to be his primary role. His primary role is not going to be finishing plays off ball, I don't think. It's going to be instant offense. It's going to be second unit. It's going to be buying LeBron time. It's going to be playing side to side with LeBron and saying, hey, you know, three out of these 10 possessions, um, something is materializing on my side of the court where you don't have to run everything through you. I do think that has decent enough value and promise for the Lakers that it's probably a net gain. So I, I like that move in theory for them. By the way, this is also something you can do when you have an Anthony Davis behind you, when you have, now LeBron keeps getting older, but I mean, when you have big, versatile defenders behind you, it, it makes it a little more reasonable to say, hey, we're going to take a guy who maybe can't stop the ball that well, or maybe his weakness is defense, because we can shore some of those things up while extracting more value from his offensive game. We'll see whether that happens, but at least in theory, uh, I, I get the trade as something targeting a weakness for the Lakers. Speaking of targeting a weakness, a really interesting one for me, because I'm high on him as a player, is Robert Covington going to Portland. Because, of course, the Blazers have had uh, such challenges with their wings, their big wings. And whether you think of Covington as a, a big wing or a small big or whatever, I think it's, it's besides the point to have that offensive backcourt and then to have someone like Nurkic, assuming he can come back, and then you bring in Robert Covington. I mean, I feel like Portland is still a piece away or a move away, but that's quietly looking like a really good team. I mean, I'm processing this kind of in real time here, but if you think you're going to have an above average defense with the addition of this move, and Covington is really versatile as the type of defender who can help in the postseason, and then you look at the offense and they're they're you know they're never going to lack firepower with the way the team is constructed and Damian Lillard. Uh, we'll see how it shakes out. I don't know if they need another big piece or what's going to happen with their entire off season personnel, but. I like that one. I like Covington next to talented offensive players like that and a backcourt like that where he can shore them up defensively on the perimeter or in help situations near the paint. Finally, let's talk about the big one with Milwaukee. Now, this is Drew Holiday coming in for Eric Bledsoe. Originally, part of this transactional um, package, if you will, was... Bogdan Bogdanovich coming from Sacramento in a sign and trade. Uh, that, of course, has been undone and, and doesn't look like it's going to happen now. And so the Bucks uh, are going to be left with Drew Holiday swapping in essentially for Eric Bledsoe, George Hill as well off the bench won't be there because he was part of that trade. And so you're left with something that I think is an okay fit. I mean, on, on one hand, you could say, well, what weaknesses do they need to patch or upgrade, especially from the perspective of the team they have built, the way they've constructed the roster to work around Giannis, five-out ball, um, you know, bud system. How will, how will that work? 
you say, okay, maybe they need more shooting. I've talked about this before. They're a volume shooting team, but not great percentages on guys. Guys like George Hill, Kyle Korver, they have really high percentages. But at Chris Middleton, really high percentages. But some of their other players, Brooke Lopez, especially Eric Bledsoe, you get a lot on defense and you get three-point shooting, but you don't get very high percentage three-point shooting. And that can be taken advantage of in the playoffs. So it, it makes sense to me that Bledsoe goes out. Drew coming in, I tend not to be as high on him as some other people in an overall sense. And one of the reasons is I don't love his shooting. He's more of a skilled man defender than a team defender to me. It'll be really, that's by the way, that's not to say he's not a good team defender, but um, just his on-ball you know, his on-ball defense is his defensive strength. And Bledsoe was so good at funneling guards and and pushing them past their screens into the drop coverage that Milwaukee likes to play. I think that's probably a downgrade with basically any guard in the league that you bring into that position. So I'm not entirely sure. I think it helps give them another competent self-generating offensive player. I like Holiday's offense better than Bledsoe's um, in a vacuum. I like Holiday as a passer better. What I would really like to see is less on-ball stuff with Giannis. I want to see Giannis more as a, as a finisher, more as a role man. Um, it's kind of that like hybrid concept that I was talking about in the podcast episode on big men archetype. I would like to see him play more like that, and that requires a better passer and better initiator. Chris Middleton has some of that. You know, his isolation scoring is pretty good. He's a pretty good passer, but to me, Middleton is less of a on-ball, dynamic, pick-and-roll guy who can throw nice lobs and little pocket passes and things like that. That's probably what you want. Holiday has some of that. He's a nice lob passer. Some of his best passes are lobs and things. So there could be some upgrade there. But, you know, this move to me is more about making a statement to Giannis that you're committed, that you're trying to bring in another high-level player. It usually doesn't hurt in general to bring in, you know, I think, again, in a vacuum, Drew Holiday is a better player than Bledsoe. So it's not that Milwaukee's getting worse by any stretch of the imagination on this move but it is interesting to me to to think about fit wise how it helps and my original thought was having a player like Bogdanovich really would help and kind of start to make these pieces fit together in a way that's interesting I mean would it be possible to run a Giannis Chris Middleton Drew Holiday Bogdanovich and one more shooter lineup, you know, that seems intriguing to me. A friend of the show, Cody Hodek, sent me this. He said, after this trade, he said, I just feel like Mugadu taking crazy pills. Giannis is going to get the same small market treatment as LeBron. There'll be rumors of picking up a Kevin Garnett or a Mari Stoudemire, but nope, you get stuck with J.J. Hickson. Then comes over-the-hill Ben Wallace. Then after that, over-the-hill Shaq. Then before Giannis leaves, he'll tell the Bucks to draft Shabazz Napier. Markets like Milwaukee can't risk leveraging their future 
by throwing in picks unless they get a home run. I'm going crazy. I don't know if I was supposed to add the I'm going crazy part. Um, But look, the point I've heard this some iteration of this in many forms. And I'm not going to get into the entire imbalance of markets in the NBA and, and the asymmetry of kind of gravitational pull of players from smaller markets to bigger markets and things like that. It is something that exists. But I think what I want to point out, what this made me think of and realize is that most teams, some, you know, if you're the Lakers, maybe you don't deal with this, but most teams in the league actually have to deal with this based on the way, um, you know, salary is structured, based on the way you've got the supermax deals and the limited contract terms. And then so you have your pending free agency. And we've seen guys leave big markets as well. We've seen guys leave championship teams just the last two years. Toronto is not a small market. They won a championship. They lost Kawhi Leonard. Golden State is not a small market. They won a championship. They lost Kevin Durant. This pressure has existed for a while. Tim Duncan maybe had a foot out the door to Orlando if they could have just let him and his family fly on the plane. (laughs) If you don't know that story, Google it. Um, The point here is trades like this, to me, I think are kind of natural win now moves. You have to balance the present and the future. I think this is largely true of any game you play, any any kind of strategy where you're balancing investment in the future and cashing in things now. And I don't know how crazy or imbalanced it is in basketball in, in the NBA. In that sense, I think a little too much is made of stars leaving small market teams because sure if you have an Anthony Davis situation that's one thing but on the other hand they didn't ever put anything around him Kevin Garnett in Minnesota you know that front office kind of gutted the equity of that franchise over the years Uh, the Joe Smith thing of course being first and foremost with all the lost draft picks but player you know there are only a handful of really 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 big market teams where you're going to be immune to this Uh, if I had to make that list off the top of my head it would be the Lakers that may be it you know the Knicks aren't run well if the Knicks have some young star and it's the same thing that happened with Anthony Davis he could be out the door just as easily Uh, Houston Houston's a big market that's a big city. They've had tremendous success. And now, of course, you're later in the contract life cycle. But, you know, James Harden's not 36 years old. Just turned 31. And he's out, basically. So I think the way the the structure, the salary structure is set up with the players and the way the players kind of have a feeling that, I mean, literally, they're free agents. They can go play in other places. They can go play with other players and teammates that they want to team up with. This is all part of the game and part of the rules. And so it does force teams to balance win now versus win later. What the Cavs did when they had LeBron James trying to load up and win while he was there, sacrificing the future to do that, I mean... I guess my question is, why wouldn't you do that? Maybe we start to get into some um, 
sort of philosophical thing where it's more exciting to always go after the thing that you can never catch. But I mean, cashing in on you're trying to cash in on what you have when you have a superstar player like LeBron or like Giannis, you have to make moves like that. Uh, This reaction, of course, is into giving up so many draft picks. So many teams in this situation give up future draft picks in these kinds of trades. And it raises the question, you know, do other teams have that leverage over them because of the uncertainty of the star player in this particular market, whether it's Milwaukee or LeBron in Cleveland or Anthony Davis in New Orleans, if they had a better situation or on and on and on. And I think the answer is yes, because what same thing as sellers and buyers at the deadline. One team that is in a position where they're trying to win now is going to have different incentives and leverage points than a team trying to build for the future. Let's end on that rant. (laughs) We will once again punt my process on watching games to a future show, maybe next next episode uh, coming up here in the offseason. We'll certainly have a few more offseason episodes before getting back into the swing of things around the end of the year, at the end of December, when the season kicks off. Remember, you can get that $90 off HelloFresh, hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball90. It's hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball90. And with the Greatest Peaks series kicking off on YouTube uh, this Monday, if you are interested in early access to those, check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Obviously, all kinds of other uh, content, and we're going to have our uh, monthly Q&A that we have coming up at the end of November, probably in our Discord community, where we get together, talk about historical uh, content. We've got drafts that they do there, um, post-show, Patreon post-show, all kinds of other stuff that you get when you sign up at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball, and you just help support this podcast, support the YouTube channel, support everything Thinking Basketball uh, that is put out. That is it for me. I appreciate you listening all the way to the end. I hope you're enjoying your off-season. You enjoyed the draft. You're staying safe wherever you are out there, wherever you're listening. And of course, as always, that you are having a great day.